Well, good evening. Take your Bible and open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. And let me read starting in verse, <clears throat> verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Romans 13, verse 11, and do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual <clears throat> promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. We're continuing here our study, obviously, in the book of Romans, the 13th chapter. We're uh, considering Paul's admonition um, as we're to look at all of life and all the relationships uh, that we are a part of uh, through the mercies of God in our own life. Uh, again, 11 chapters of theology, 11 uh, chapters of doctrine, the wisdom of God, the grace of God in our salvation. And then you come to chapter 12 and it's now therefore. So it's how, how do we respond to that? And I told you, I think 12, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is really the key to the second half of the, of the book of Romans, how we live in response to God's mercy. J.B. Phillips, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but uh, he has a, uh, a translation of this text. He says like this, with eyes wide open, this is uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and, and acceptable by him. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your mind from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good and meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. That's a good paraphrase, I think, of that portion of Scripture. So again, we've been talking over these past many weeks, again, the fact of the mercies of God in our own life. And because of that, every relationship, everybody we come in contact with uh, has been affected. The relationships we have with others is affected by God's uh, uh, mercy to us. It starts with God himself. We are to give ourselves back to him in, in, in total. And then we're to love and care for those in the body of Christ. Our, uh, and, and we're to use our, our giftedness for their good. Uh, we're also to love and care for those who are outside the body of Christ. Uh, unbelievers. And we're never to return evil for evil. Uh, because of, again, God's mercy to us in Christ. And because of God's mercy to us in Christ, we're to subject ourselves to, to governing authorities out of uh, command of God, out of, of, out of fear of God, and out of conscience sake. And we're to have a love for those around us. We're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Because, again, everything has changed, and every relationship we have is now different because God has acted in our life. I said it this morning, God has interfered and that's the reality. God has interfered in our life, and we're thankful for that. So the first words here that introduce this section are this, and, and, and do this. Verse 11, and do this. He's basically saying, never stop. Never stop uh, living uh, and presenting your bodies as holy and living sacrifices acceptable to God. <clears throat> never stop uh, loving those around you. Never stop loving 
uh, or living wholeheartedly for Christ and glorifying God in Christ and everything you do, that should be the primary object, uh, objective of your life as a believer. So what Paul's going to do in the section in front of us, uh, he's going to focus on those truths, but then <clears throat> kind of hone in on the urgency of becoming more like Christ. So, so I, I entitled the sermon, The Ur- Urgency of the Hour, because that's really the issue here, the urgency of the time, uh, um, uh, becoming more and more like Christ, uh, the urgency of becoming more and more like our Savior in light of his soon coming return. So the summary or the culmination, I think, of this chapter really is verse 14 of the text where it says, where Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's probably the summary. That's our goal. That's spiritual growth as God's children. That's where spiritual growth will take us, where faith leads to be increasingly more and more like our Savior like our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're to clothe ourselves with him. It's a metaphor, obviously. We're, we're to clothe ourselves in his righteousness and his holiness. We're to become more and more like him on a daily basis. Uh, his character must be reflected in us, in our interaction with those around us. His character uh, must be reflected through us in everything that we do. So it's really a practical application of positional truth. We already, uh, what we already enjoy in Christ. Uh, We're really called now because of the position we have in Christ as those redeemed, part of his family, saved. We're we're to practice that in our our life on a daily basis. It's called sanctification, the process of sanctification. So we're commanded to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, the command obviously is for believers. Unbelievers can't do this. Like we just talked last time, unbelievers can't love the way that God commands us to love. But the believer has been made righteous by the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the believer has had his sin covered by Christ, <clears throat> by his holiness, his virtue, his divine nature. God has graciously covered our sin with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we call that justification. Uh, we have right standing with God because of Christ. We're declared not guilty and <clears throat> positively <clears throat> excuse me, righteous in front of the, the judgment bar of God, if you will. That's positional truth for the believer. But we have a practical responsibility to live out that righteousness, to live in righteousness. Again, that's called sanctification. We must daily put on the person of Jesus Christ, put on his holiness, his, his virtue, his character. See, again, all of life the way he would see uh, a, a, a life uh, uh, around us. And then the command, again, practically, day-to-day in sanctification is not to look backwards, but it's to look forward. So we, we just keep looking forward. How do we live in light of the reality of Christ in our life and the fact that Christ has changed us? How, how do we walk with him? How, how do we interact with people around us? Now, you can uh, just listen to me, or if you'd like to turn over just real quickly, I thought Titus 2 really gives a concise um, picture here. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Paul says this, <clears throat> and it gets it's just a real concise picture, I think. He says, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And it's not, he's not talking universalism, obviously he's talking about all classes of men, all kinds of men. God has sent salvation. He has sent salvation in the appearance of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And men who repent and believe are justified in Christ. Men have right standing before him. Uh, Our sins are forgiven. And now we're given new life in Christ. That justification, that sanctification, again, that positional truth must live itself out or be evidence in the way we live out our life 
uh, before others. So again, the practical aspect in verse 12, it says, um, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's the result of Christ in our lives. Right? We need to bring our life into practice with our position. We need to become exactly who we are in Christ, separate from sin, justified individuals. Uh, again, granted the righteousness of Christ before God. So we have to live as saved individuals. We have to live righteous lives. Verse 13, he says, and you do this in anticipation of the return of Christ, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's who we are in Christ. We have this great hope of Christ uh, coming, and, and it affects the entirety of our life. We're looking for him. He gave himself for us. He might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous right, for good deeds. So that's what Paul's saying. That's a concise picture, I think, out of those couple of verses there in Titus chapter 2. But that's what he's talking about in, uh, in the Romans 13 passage. And if you go back to Romans 13, you'll see that there are three uh, commands that are given in this section of Scripture. Three commands. Uh, uh, number one is to wake up. And number two is to put off. And number three is to put on. So wake up, put off, and put on. So again, the section really deals, is, uh, is coming with a sense of urgency to do these things. Do this. Or this do knowing the time. So again, here's another further motivation uh, for godly living. Another motivation to wholeheartedly live for Christ. It's found in understanding the time in which we live. It's found in understanding the time in which we live. It's found in living in the present in the light of the future soon return uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 11. And this do knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So again, the reality is for a Christian that they know the time. We know the time. We, we know that the entire tenor of the Bible, the entire teaching of the Bible, is that there is an eternal plan of God that is being worked out in time. There's an ultimate goal, an ultimate destiny uh, that awaits every individual, a believer or non-believer. It, it doesn't matter. There's an ultimate direction that time is going to. The entire universe isn't just moving around in uh, haphazard in a random fashion to some vague point, but there's an end point of eternity, uh, an end point of history, and, and the, the universe, the world, and all people in it are really moving towards an eschatological conclusion eschatology is the word that we would use and it comes from eschatos uh, means a last and then ology is obviously the study so la- the study of last things the, the, the study of the final events of the history of the world or uh, really the ultimate destiny of humanity so the whole world is moving towards an eschatological conclusion that, that's, why the, that's why Paul think about this why Paul warned us admonished us urged us back in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 listen do not be conformed to this world. You know why? Because this world is not the only world there is. There's another world that's coming. Right? Don't be conformed to this world. This is not all there is. This world is passing away. First John chapter 2, verse 17. 
the world is passing away and so also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God uh, abides forever. So there's a plan and a purpose uh, for all things that occur. Uh, nothing is, is by chance. Everything is progressing forward toward its ultimate end. Everything is under the control and direction of God himself. In the literal sense, history is his story. It all belongs to him. Uh, history is redemptive, the story of redemption. And, and time exists not for men, but time really exists for God. Uh, time exists for God in order to carry out his eternal plan of redemption so that he might be glorified and Christ might be worshipped throughout time and that, then uh, throughout the eternal future. So again, verse 11, and this do knowing the time, the word knowing, edu, it just means to perceive, uh, to discern, uh, uh, to give your attention to, to observe. Knowing the time, and the word there is karyos. It's not a reference to like chronological time, like on your watch, um, uh, but it, it rather is speaking to the idea of an age, an era, a season. Marvin Vincent in his word studies of the New Testament says this, the word karyos implies a particular time. It's related to some event or a particular point of time or a particular season, such as spring or winter. Uh, the theological dictionary of the New Testament says the word karyos uh, has in its sense a decisive, or has the idea of a decisive moment. Bauer and Gingrich uh, says the word uh, mean, means, uh, again, in an eschatological sense, uh, it's the, karyos is supremely God's time. It's God's time. So what time is it? Well, it's God's time. Time belongs to him. Right? All of time belongs to God. And, and since redemption is moving forward, and all of redemption is taking place in history, since God has a predetermined plan and end, uh, again, that he has set forth, uh, since it's progressively moving forward to this predetermined end, and God is the prime mover behind the whole thing, the great cause of uh, all of history, uh, that he has planned again before the foundation of the world, how do we look at time? Now, again, from a fallen human perspective, we look at time in, in, in uh, uh, light of kings or wars or presidents or, or whatever, but that's not a very good way to think about it. We, we should, because God is in control of everything and time has a purpose for him on a redemptive, uh, 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 redemptive um, aspect, it's probably best to look at time as, as it relates to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the central figure in the eternal plan of redemption. Now, we understand that we use these uh, words B.C. or A.D. to refer to time. B.C. is before Christ, and then A.D. is Anno Domini, which just means in the year of the Lord. If you're a progressive, there's a push in the modern time to, to change the phraseology to C.E. Sometimes you'll see that common era uh, because they just want to do away with the, the name of, of Jesus Christ as a reference to time. But the Bible divides time up into three major categories, and again, it relates to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and they're pretty simple. So here are the three divisions of time biblically. One is the time before Christ came into the world. Second is the time Christ was incarnate, that he lived in the world and went back to glory. And then third is when he comes again. So there's three divisions of time biblically. And the reality is the first two eras of time, they've ended. Right? Christ is uh, before, the, before he came, that's over. He's come, he's gone back to glory. The only thing that is left is when he comes again. So we live in this time or this era, this period, subsequent to or just prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Therefore, we need to understand the reality that time is what? 
short. Time is short. Time is running out. We're two-thirds of the way through the, the clock, if you will. There's not much time left. Now, can you say with great confidence that these are the capital T-H-E, the last days? Well, none of us knows exactly where we are on the prophetic clock. Uh, most certainly, I think you can say these are the last days in the sense of, of history uh, and that this is the last time, this is the last year before Christ returns. Again, nobody knows when Christ will return, the exact time. So anytime you hear somebody set a date, you can know that you can just stop sending them your money because they don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> But it's going to happen. He's coming back. The theologians refer to this as the uh, parousia. Uh, um, uh, It means the the presence or the coming. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming parousia, the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the coming of the Lord, the second advent of the Lord, literally, technically, is in process. The coming, it's in process. He's coming back. Uh, There's not a whole lot of history left before he comes back, but the whole process has already been set in motion. And and again, theologians would see the return of Christ as imminent. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, imminent. And, And imminent comes from a Latin term that means impending, uh, or about to happen, ready to take place, hanging threateningly over one's head. The return of Christ is imminent. That's the consistent teaching of the New Testament, that Christ would return, and he could return at any moment. Now, of course, we're some 2,000 years down the road from when Paul penned this letter to the book of Romans. So we're 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ. And if you stop and think about this, today we are closer than we've ever been to the return of Christ. Now, again, we can't be specific on the exact day, uh, a specific time of the return of Christ. Again, we don't set dates, but we can look at the words of the Lord Jesus, uh, especially, I think, in the Olivet Discourse uh, that's found in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and, and Mark uh, 13. And, and Jesus kind of he gave signs of his coming just prior to his return. And if you just kind of took all of those, all of those texts and kind of lumped them together in large categories, uh, you would see certain things. You would see that just before the return, the second coming of the, of the person of Christ, you would see that there would be international unre- unrest. International unrest. That there'd be all around the, the world wars and rumors of wars. And nations rising up against other nations. Now, of course, those kind of things have been going on since time began. But Christ says, look, these things are going to happen, and they're going to happen more frequently. There's going to be increasing intensity to all these categories that I'm, I'm going to give you. <laughs> kind of like birth pains for a, a woman who's, about to, to, who's in labor and, and about to give um, birth. Uh, increasingly intense, increasingly frequent, these, these, uh, 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 these issues, uh, again, in the category. So you have international unrest. Uh, another category, Christ says, is you're going to see increasing natural disasters. You're going to see diseases and famines and earthquakes and deadly plagues and, and pestilence uh, that's going to bring, bring fear to the hearts of men. And, and along with that, famine. Uh, food shortages. If you're paying attention to anything that's going on in the world, there's all kinds of warnings that we're in in an impending food shortages uh, all around the world. Christ says the third category of uh, towards the just prior to his return, there's going to be increasing persecution of Christians. He said many Christians are going to be martyred. 
They're going to be hated by all nations on account of Christ. Uh, brothers are going to rise up against brother and fathers against their children and the children against their parents. There's going to be an increasing falling away from uh, the church. There's going to be increasing a number of false believers, a growing apostasy. Uh, there's going to be many false prophets that go out and, and mislead many away from the truth. The fourth category that Jesus warned just uh, prior to his return is that there would be uh, a breakdown in law and order. Lawlessness would increase. Most people's love would grow cold. A violence uh, would grow. Yet he also says the gospel is going to continue to go forward and, and many would be saved. And when the gospel goes to the entire earth, then the end shall come. And finally, if you look at the book of Revelation, you'd see there's also uh, a promise uh, of coming economic control of the entire world assets. Uh, and it's going to prevent you, this control is going to prevent you from buying or selling anything unless you're part of the system. And to be a part of that system, you're going to have to take the mark. And if you don't take the mark that identifies you as part of the system, you'll not be allowed to buy or sell. And then you come to the end, there's going to be a worldwide control over all the assets. And then there's going to come a final worldwide economic collapse. Now, all of these things we see presently that are going on around us at the moment. Again, I'm not making any predictions on when Christ would come, but he said these are the signs that you'll see before my arrival. And again, they're happening with increasing frequency, increasing intensity, just like birth pangs. But the reality is he's coming soon. He's promised that. And I think there's a certain sense we get this. We're living in unprecedented times, unprecedented times of trouble in human history. Seems like things have radically changed in, in just the last couple of years. There's been a, a dramatic difference, a shift. Uh, again, tribulations and problems and uh, uh, issues and disease and unrest and lawlessness and increasing natural disasters. They, they just all seem to be there and, and growing. There's a growth, a, a rise in totalitarianism amongst governments all, all around the world. There's increasing talk of a one world ruler or a one world system. So I think we just need to recognize the sign of the times. In the words of the great theologian Christopher Robin, as he spoke to Winnie the Pooh, he said, tut, tut, looks like what? Rain? Right? We need to be able to discern the sign of the times that's going on. We need to wake up. Now, I guess the Lord could delay for another thousand years or so, but it doesn't seem likely. And again, the church has always believed and taught the doctrine of imminency. That again, Christ could come at any moment. And if Christ could come at any moment, that has to affect uh, the way you live. Uh, the church should always be ready. There's really nothing prophetically that needs to happen before Christ comes and returns for his church by way of rapture. Because the truth is, there's no wrath for the believer. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, for, but, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, there's now what? Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ will take his church out before the time of the tribulation. Christ will take his bride to be with him by, before the time of the tribulation. When the tribulation comes, the Lord is going to come. He's going to conquer and put down all opposition. He's going to bring judgment upon unbelievers. And then he'll, at the end of the time of the tribulation, he'll set up his millennial reign. There'll be a final judgment just before the end. And all unbelievers will be judged and damned. And then comes the eternal future, the eternal state. 
And again, from the beginning, uh, earliest days of the church, uh, the church expectantly waited and looked forward to the return of Christ at any moment. James, who's one of the earliest writers in the New Testament, told his readers this, James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's the doctrine of intimacy. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment, sober in spirit, for the purpose of prayer. The writer of the book of Hebrews uh, says, uh, speaks of the imminent return of Christ as a reason to remain faithful. Hebrews 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Verse 37 of the chapter, and yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. John, in 1 John 2, verse 18, he says, children, it is the last hour. Just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it is the last hour. The return of Christ is imminent, soon, at any moment. So again, Paul says this, verse 13, And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Now, in that little phrase, and this do, the word do, D-O, really is not there in the original. So it's literally, and this. And, and, and that phrase, and this, really brings with it everything that he's been talking about uh, up to this point. It's kind of the whole package of, of information. Everything he's been speaking about regarding being saved and, and being saved by grace and by the mercies of Christ in your own life. And this. So basically, Paul says, everything that I've been telling you, presenting to you, uh, you're presenting your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, everything that I've been telling you about not being conformed to this world, uh, about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, uh, about loving those around you and loving the church and loving those outside the church in light of the reality of the return of Christ, because it's near, it's imminent, the the return is at any moment, and this do knowing the time, knowing that we are in the last days. Knowing that the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, that time is running short. So he wants us to understand the urgency of the hour. The urgency of the hour, of the time. And he wants believers to wake up. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you, here it is, to awaken from sleep. Now I looked up a dictionary definition of the word sleep And it said this, it says, a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. I certainly hope that doesn't define anybody who's sitting here in the room at the moment with my sermon, but that's a definition of sleep. Sadly, however, it does describe a lot of the church, a lot of Christians conditioned on a spiritual level, uh, a position or state of inactivity, a state of the loss of consciousness, as many Christians, I think, fail to understand and realize the urgency of the time. Paul says, knowing the time, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. The urgency of the moment in which we live in, it's no time for slumber. It's no time for sloth. 
It's no time to be asleep. It's no time to be, uh, uh, no time for sleep because time is limited. It's no time for apathy, no time for complacency, no time for indifference. Time is short, eternity is coming. And the opportunities before us are brief. The opportunities for faithfulness, the opportunities for obedience, the opportunities for for evangelism, they'll come to an end when Christ returns because then judgment will fall. And this do knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is near to us and when we believed. Again, he's not speaking about salvation on a personal level. That's already been completed in Christ. He's writing this to believers. That's already been finished. There's a sense that you can speak about salvation in a past, present, and future tense. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved right? when we're finally glorified. So he's not talking again when he says that now salvation is near to us and we believe. Again, he's not talking about our personal position before Christ, but he's really talking about, again, the Lord's return. Now salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. Christ's return is imminent. He's saying that again, the return of Christ, to set up godliness, to put down uh, all unrighteousness, to do away with all that is evil, all that is rebellious. He says, look, we've never been so close to the return of Christ as we are. And again, we're 2,000 years down the road. 2,000 2000 years down the road from when Christ, or when Paul wrote these words, and with him, even in this hour, now salvation is nearer than when we first believed. There's even with him at that time a sense of urgency. And and there's been a sense of urgency, the return of Christ throughout the entire history of the church. And and, and certainly, there most certainly, there'd have to be an even greater sense of urgency in the time in which we live, when Christ is going to come and make all things right. when he's going to put down all unrighteousness. Therefore, he's saying, look, it's time for the believer to wake up. Live with that sense of urgency. Live with that sense of anticipation. It's time for the unbeliever to be warned. Again, time is running out. Uh, One day, grace is going to come to an end and judgment will come. Wrath will be upon you. So the seriousness of the time, the urgency of the hour... Again, it's put forth in the next verse. Verse 12, he says, The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. <clears throat> Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, night and dark are metaphors. They're used in reference to the previous admonition to wake up from the sleep uh, that we find ourselves in. Metaphors to describe the spiritual condition of the world, the spiritual condition that we once found ourselves in apart from Christ. And again, it's important for us as believers to understand the time in which we we live, Uh, not only in regard to the imminent return of Christ, but also understand the world in which we live, that it is a time of night. The world in which we live, it's a time of night. It's a time of darkness. Uh, The whole world apart from Christ is described that way as as night and and darkness. Uh, The world uh, is uh, uh, irrevocably opposed to the light of the gospel of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what I spoke about uh, in part this morning, right? And that's where we were apart from Christ. Uh, and the whole world apart from Christ. This is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. Men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. John three nineteen, Ephesians four seventeen. I say therefore uh, and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walked. In the futility of, it, of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the uh, ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, 
They have become callous. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You did not learn Christ in this way. That's a great definition of, of, of darkness. Darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Again, when you reject the word of God, you become your own standard. And, and, and chaos and judgment ensue. So there's a lack of an awareness on things on a spiritual level when you're separated from God. There's an ignorance of God's truth. Uh, that's darkness. Darkness is being blind spiritually, uh, uh, hard-hearted, calloused, and, and insensitive to the things of God. Uh, again, remaining in sin. Again, having become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and uh, with greediness. And you did not learn Christ this way. Remember I told you this morning, uh, Ephesians 5.8 says, you, before we came to Christ, you were formerly darkness. That, that's who he used to be. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There's a complete difference between the uh, unbeliever and the believer. That's the reality. And we're to manifest that truth on a practical level, living in a dark world. And again, it's only because of God's kindness, his mercy in our own life uh, that he has come to us and called us and saved us out of this present evil world, out of this world of, uh, of darkness and, and uh, 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 that we find ourselves uh, living in, that we were once darkness ourselves. It's only because of God's mercy to us through the person of Jesus Christ that we've been redeemed out of. He says, knowing the time that is already the hour for which you to awake, for you to awaken uh, from your sleep, for salvation is now nearer than when we believed. Again, verse 12, the night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Well, what day? Well, again, it's just the return of Christ. That's what he's speaking about. So again, it means that the Christian understands uh, the future, the reality of the future, the, uh, w- what's going to happen. There's a, a time of uh, a time when spiritual unbelief and rebellion, uh, that's about to come to an end. There's a time of judgment that is coming uh, that will commence and it will commence soon. So when we look from our perspective, we often get discouraged. I think we look at man's depravity and we uh, look at Satan's dominion that seems to be, again, overwhelming uh, the culture and becoming stronger and stronger. And, and uh, the world is not becoming more and more godlike, more and more Christ-like. The light's not growing brighter, it's growing dimmer. The reality is that it seems like the, the ruler of this world, the prince of this age, uh, who as a murderer and liar, he's recruiting more and more people and they're becoming just more and more like him, full of evil. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do this thing, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the world around us. Men and women are becoming more and more wicked, exchanging the truth for a lie. Worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Filled with all kinds of uh, um, uh, degrading passions and, and perversions. Minds that no longer work right because they're, uh, they're depraved. Uh, and, and again, doing those things that are not proper. But, but God's word says this. Listen, the night is almost what? Gone. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. The day is at hand. Man's, man's day of evil, man's, man's night of evil and rebellion is almost over. 
The day is at hand. This is the, the God's day, the day of light. The day is at hand means that there's a coming day and of eschatological judgment again, and, and the coming is imminent. It's at hand, it's soon, it's in process, and it's the return of the righteous one. We've we got to look at things from a full biblical perspective. At hand, the day is at hand. John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon is called faithful and true, and righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has the name written upon him, which no one else knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following with him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord at Lords. Right? The day is at hand. The night is almost over. That's compelling reason the fact that Christ the righteous one is about to soon return at any moment. That's compelling reason for all men to get their life together. For all men to repent and believe come to the gospel while there's still opportunity for repentance. And it's compelling reason for why believers must practically live in accordance to their doctrinal uh, position, to who we are in Christ. Because Christ is coming. Judgment is imminent. Christ is going to come and he's going to destroy the works of the devil, it says in 1 John 3, 8. It's coming like a thief in the night. And when men are running around saying peace and safety, destruction is going to come upon them to come upon them suddenly. Again, like birth pangs to come upon a woman who's in childbirth. They're going to come and not go away. They're not going to be able to escape. Second Thessalonians 1, 7, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, doing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So he's saying, look, for those who continue in rebellion all the way to the end, for those who don't know God, for those who refuse to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to pay for that penalty. You're going to pay the penalty of that error, that mistake, that rebellion and sin against God forever. It's a place of torment. Uh, a place of eternal conscious torment, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, a place where the worm never dies and the fire never is quenched. But in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, again, that day of judgment, <clears throat> which again will be the ruin of and retribution for the unbeliever, but it's also, also going to be, when he comes back, a great day of glory and relief for, for those who do believe. When he comes to be glorified with the saints on that day, to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So Christ is coming back uh, for the believer. It's going to be a great day of rejoicing, a great day of worship, uh, adoration of him. When Christ comes, it will also be a day of judgment. A day of, con- a day of condemnation for the unbeliever and a day of judgment for, for all men, uh, the righteous and the, and, and the unrighteous. Now, for the unrighteous, <clears throat> the verdict is already in. Because you've not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are guilty already, judged guilty already, uh, condemned. 
waiting nothing more than the execution of the the judgment. But for the believer, there's going to be a judgment of works, and really it's a judgment of reward. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, uh, according to what he has done, either good or bad. And every true believer obviously has a desire to be pleasing to God. We realize that every one of us is going to one day give an account uh, uh, before him. Every Christian is going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, sometimes it's known as the bema seat. It was a word that was used in in the, in the Greek culture, speaking of a, uh, an elevated platform where a victorious athlete was given uh, their medal, uh, the, the reward, their crown uh, uh, during the uh, uh, the games. And Paul uses it here with the Corinthians, again, the St. Corinthians, uh, for those who understand it in the culture, this athletic analogy, that, that every Christian is going to stand before God and be rewarded for how they live their lives, what they've done in, in their lives, uh, either good or bad. Uh, again, for the believer, it's not a place of judgment as in condemnation because there's no condemnation for those from Christ Jesus. But the judgment is, again, a place of reward. Uh, our condemnation, our, our sin debt has been paid for at Calvary, but how we've dealt with our, our lives and how we've lived our lives in, in this world is going to be scrutinized. It's going to be evaluated. And there's going to be eternal rewards uh, from God based on what we've done with Christ in our life, how we've lived our our life in, in this temporal body, uh, the impact that we've had on others around us for time and eternity. Uh, God is going to judge all of that. And God expects us to live according to our calling. He expects us to live who we are in Christ. He expects us to live in a manner that glorifies Him and glorifies the Son. He expects us to spend our time and our energy and our resources doing those things that have eternal value for people. Again, bringing glory and honor to Him and the Son and all we do in time. And for some, again, in the body of Christ, when, when Christ comes, it's going to be a, a great day of rejoicing. Many will hear, well done, uh, thou good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. However, when Christ returns, uh, again, for some in the body of Christ, although saved, it's going to be a day of shame because of what they have failed to do, what they have not done. First John 2 and 26, now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and be and uh, shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So again, for those who've walked with Christ and uh, been obedient and to his commands and have lived their lives in a manner that uh, uh, brings glory and honor to him, it's going to be a great day when he appears. But for those who are in the body of Christ who have not been steadfast, who have not been actively, continually in obedience, uh, living their life to the fullest extent, glorifying Christ, doing those uh, around them spiritually good because of God's mercies to their own and their own life, it's going to be a day of shame, not not a day of, of great uh, rejoicing and reward. So all all that to say is how we live our life really matters. How we live our life really matters. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. He says, let us therefore... Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as the day, not carousing, not in carousing and, and drunkenness, not in sexual uh, promiscuity or, or sensuality, not in strife uh, and jealousy. Uh, 
Let us lay aside, therefore, the deeds of darkness, put on the, the armor of light. So, so again, Paul is saying, look, uh, there's something you have to do. If you're going to live in, a, in accordance to the reality of who you are in Christ, the proclamation of the gospel, then there's something that you have to do in your life uh, before the coming of the Lord. Uh, to live your life properly in this fallen world as a believer. Something you have to lay aside or throw off and then something that you have to put on right, or take up. Now, now the imagery that he's using is really clothing. We've got that, I, I think, but it's really the imagery of a soldier. That's where the armor kind of comes in. And, and it's really the imagery of a soldier who's in, in, uh, uh, engaged in um, uh, deeds of darkness. So, so the kind of the picture here is that the night before battle, most Roman soldiers would go out and get drunk and do all kinds of other things, right? Because they knew that battle was coming the next day. And so um, basically using that kind of imagery of, of clothing and approaching the coming of something imminent, uh, Paul is saying to the believer, you've got to wake up. You've got to get out of your slumber. You've got to take off the night clothing. Uh, you've got to throw off the filthy deeds of who we once were when we were in darkness. Uh, those things that are characteristic of those who are, uh, live in darkness in this present age. And you've got to put on your armor. Now, sadly, I think in, in Christianity, there seems to be an ever-increasing uh, um, thought that Christianity is pretty much passive. Now, most Christians, I think, they just come on Sunday morning, Sunday night. Most of them probably don't come back on Sunday night. And they just come and listen. They come listen to the sermon. They've checked the box off. They go home unaffected, uh, unchanged, uh, having done their duty, quote-unquote, uh, for that day. But Christianity is not passive. Christianity is always active. Christianity is active. There's something that we must be doing. And, and if I'm doing a good job preaching and you're listening well to the Word of God, uh, and, and uh, you should be aroused by the person of the Holy Spirit every time you hear the Word of God, and then you should be, by that Spirit-empowered Word, challenged in your life. That Spirit-empowered Word should, should cause you to get up and get out of your seats and become involved and be called, become involved in a lot of activities of the fellowship, but, but really become involved on a, spiritual, on a daily level in a spiritual battle against ungodliness, unrighteousness, and for you to put on holiness. You should have that desire, again, to be more and more like Christ. So if I'm doing my job well and the Holy Spirit's working through this preached word, uh, again, no longer you're just going to be onlookers, not just sideliner people. You're not just going to be sitting back and watching as time goes by. You're going to be active participants, uh, dynamically living out your Christian faith, carefully examining your life, making sure that you're indeed who you claim to be. I mean, that Romans 7 passage is, or uh, uh, Matthew 7 passage is just terrible. Right? A terrible warning. Many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he says, what? I don't know you. I mean, who are we in Christ? Are we really who we claim to be? I think there's a great danger to come and listen to the pre preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, and not be moved by it. There's a great danger to come and, and to be, uh, uh, become hardened or callous to the truth. The purpose of the preaching is not only to instruct your mind, but it's to motivate your heart to action, your feet to action to practice the change that has been won for you in Christ. Now, the purpose of the preaching is to cause us all to, to wake up from the spiritual lethargy that we tend to find ourselves in, again, being caught up in the culture and become active, active Christians, realizing that salvation is now nearer to us than when we first believed. Realizing, again, the night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Therefore, God has caused us or commands us to action, 
to get dressed properly, to, to cast aside, to throw off, to lay aside the, the deeds of darkness. And, and again, that phraseology, lay aside, just literally means we're to forsake them. We're to renounce them. We're to have nothing to do with who we used to be before we came to Christ. We're to have nothing to do with the deeds of the world. We're to lay aside the deeds of darkness because we've repented of them. They're no longer part of our life, so we've literally just cast them off like, like dirty clothes. And now we've turned, we've repented, we've come to Christ. We're walking in a complete different direction before God started working in our life. And, and we're work, walking in righteousness and holiness with the goal, the desire to honor God, to honor Christ in everything we do. The person of Christ, the person of God compels us. Right? So we're forgiven, so we just want to honor them with everything we do in our life and time. Now, again, man's not saved by works. We understand that, but we're, we're not saved just by faith alone. Faith works. There's, a, there's a, a response to it, a practical application in our lives. Doctrine and practice have to line up. They have to go together. So, again, that's what Paul's saying here in this Romans 13 passage as it kind of comes, comes to an end here. Uh, there's a complete inconsistency if you claim to be a follower of Christ and yet you're still living the way you used to do apart from Christ. Be- before you came to faith in Christ, before you claim to be born again. Again, so many people that I've met over the years who say they believe in Jesus, and, and, I, and I try to be gracious, but, but that's not sufficient. What do you believe about Jesus? It's not so much do you believe in Jesus as what does your belief in Jesus, how has that affected your life? That's really the question. How has it transformed and changed you from the inside out? What's different about you because now you quote-unquote believe in Jesus than you were before you came to, to believe upon him? So it's a complete inconsistency to live like we used to be. We're to, we're to let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness, throw them off, throw them away, have nothing to do with them. The deeds of darkness, again, these things that we used to be a part of before we came to faith in Christ, the, the deeds of the night uh, that, that still are, are practiced amongst the pagans. So again, these things really cause shame. And again, for the believer, we should never be a part of that if we're in Christ. Um, uh, he, again, he's saying, make your calling, make your election sure. Uh, and, and he says, keep preparing. Uh, get ready to do battle. Christ is coming. Uh, repentance looks like something. Prepare. Live in anticipation. Live with a sense of urgency. Now, I, I've already said it and a number of times. I said it this morning especially, but the deeds of darkness. And again, darkness is, is just a, a representative uh, title for sin, all kinds of sin and unrighteousness. So we're to lay aside that. Uh, we're to keep laying aside. That's really the idea of the word. We just keep laying it aside. We just keep casting aside the, the, the deeds of darkness to be once and for all rid of all the filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, as James says in James one twenty one. And we're to lay that aside and we're to put on. We're to put on the armor of light. So in Christ, we take off the night clothes and we get ready and prepare for battle. We put on the armor. Why? Because the day's at hand. Now, armor, obviously, is something that's used of a warrior. Uh, armor is made for warfare. And a proper sense of understanding of the time in which we live results in a realization, again, of the urgency of the hour that leads us to understand that we're at war. We're at war. We've got to do battle. We've got to get ready to do battle. We're not of this world, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. We're not there yet. We're... we're, we're uh, 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 Already, but not yet, right? We're, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we're still here physically upon the earth, so we have to do battle. We do battle with our flesh. We do battle with the world of ungodliness all around us. 
We, we have to take up the armor. We have to walk in light and not walk in darkness. We must put on the clothing of Christ. We must be wearing the right clothing to be walking with God, uh, appropriate for those who are of the day and no longer of the night, for those who are of light. And we don't want to make ourselves at home here. Again, this is not our home. We're children of the heavenly kingdom. And we're going to do war with the world, again, with the flesh, with the devil. We're Christian soldiers involved in a tremendous warfare, a tremendous battle, a fight, a fight of faith. We have to get ready. So we have to cast off and we have to put on. We have to get dressed in the armor of God. We have to once for all throw off the deeds of darkness and then never take them up again. Put on the armor of light and then stand firm. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. He's saying, look, you've got to live a life of integrity. You have to be living a life consistently with who you claim to be. You have to live a life outwardly consistently with who you claim to be inwardly as somebody who's saved, redeemed, constantly, honestly, uh, uh, consistently walking with that new nature that God has given to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, death, uh, substitutionary death, atonement on our behalf. We have to demonstrate the fact that we are really justified, that Christ is in us, that we really do have the peace that God offers us uh, through the Savior, and we're living in, in accordance. And you'll notice here in, in the text there are three um, three pairs of activities that are part of the darkness. And these are the kind of activities that would have been common for a Roman soldier the night before he goes to war. He would have been involved in these kind of things. And he's saying, look, you can't be a part. These things can't be a part of your life as a true believer. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing. Some of the, uh, some of your translations say not in orgies or, or drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality or some of your, say, debauchery or lewdness and lust. And then not in strife and jealousy or in envy. Those things can no longer mark the life of a genuine believer. They have to be removed from the life of the Christian. These are the deeds of the flesh. These are the works of the flesh. And on account of these things, the wrath of God comes. And we are to have nothing to do with them. So we throw off these deeds. We, 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 we behave properly as who we are. Verse 14, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Well, what does that mean, to put on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, it's a summary statement of, of the entire doctrine of sanctification. It really is a description of continual spiritual growth uh, for those who become children of God. We're faithfully obedient to God, faithfully obedient to, to Christ. We're growing spiritually. We're pursuing Christ-likeness, becoming increasingly like our Savior, thinking like Him, acting like Him, interacting with people uh, around us like He would. We're clothing ourselves with Him, His righteousness, His truthfulness, His holiness, His love. Again, we're becoming more and more like Him, and that should become more and more evident to those around us that we're no longer who we used to be. Because we're no longer who we used to be. Now we belong to him. We're different, changed by his character, by his nature. And that's the call is to live that out practically and tangibly in our lives. 
Isaiah 61 verse 10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That's a great statement. And that's what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So as those who understand as believers, we're living in the urgency of the hour, looking to the second coming of Christ. We know it's imminent, could happen at any time. That's a cause for sanctification. That's a cause for us to get ready. Uh, we're going to be with him, and we long to be with him. We want to please him. Uh, we know time is running out, so we want to evaluate our lives carefully. We want to be found faithful when he returns. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a whole lot more they could say about that, but it's really the whole picture of growth on a spiritual level, intentionally becoming more like Christ. And you become intentionally more like Christ when you pursue the person of Christ. And the more you love him, the more you grow in, in your, your love for him, the more you want to please him. So just that cycle of, of being righteous, like he is righteous because he's granted that to us. Now, Paul says this, for those who believe, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, make no provision for the flesh regarding to its lusts. So make no provision for the flesh means that we're to make sure that we don't plan to feed the flesh because the flesh wants what it wants. You know, sinful thoughts, sinful desires sometimes uh, uh, come through our minds. Uh, we, We may not be able to stop them from coming in our minds, but we can't let them linger. I think it was Spurgeon who said, you can't stop a bird from lighting on your head, but you can stop him from building a nest. And I think that's the idea, right? I mean, sometimes you, you're sitting there going out, and all, all of a sudden, like, arrows literally coming at you, this evil thought, this, this you know, where does that come from? You know, that's part of the spiritual battle, but we're not to, we're not to make any provision for that. We're, we're to walk in, in holiness and walk in sanctification. We're not to allow long, uh, wrong thoughts to linger. We're not to permit them to stay in our minds. Uh, we're we're to f- not to find ways to, to act out those thoughts. Again, we put on Christ. Is this honoring to Christ? Is this pleasing to Christ? Every morning you get up and you say, look, first thing you do, first breath you take is, I just want to be honoring to you today. Help me to honor you. That, that's a good way to put on Christ every single morning. Now he says, put on, uh, he says, make no provision for the flesh. And again, the flesh is just the remaining humanness, right? The, the lingering uh, uh, proclivity for sin in our bodies that, that wants to find its expression, right? So there's a battle between who we are as redeemed individuals and this flesh that wants to, uh, to, to continue to sin. But in Christ, we have the ability not to give in to the flesh. In Christ, we have the ability to be obedient. In Christ, we make no provision for the flesh. We put on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We, we kill the flesh. We mortify it. And, and we put off the deeds of darkness, and we put on the armor of light, and we behave properly. We refuse to satisfy self. Uh, we, we get rid of self. Again, we don't indulge self. We, we kill it. We mortify it. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to honor you. Help me. I'm struggling here, Lord. Help me to, to walk in faithfulness and righteousness as you uh, desire. Help me to put you on just like a soldier uh, puts on his armor as he goes out for battle. That's the picture. So that just means we're staying in constant communication with him. We're relying on him, praying to him always. I hope this is a repeated prayer in your life. It's a repeated prayer in my life. Always, I don't know how many times a day I say it. Here it is. Lord, help me. There it is. I need help. I need help in a lot of different areas. And I just, I pray that because I believe that the Lord's going to help me or I wouldn't pray. Or any business come to the throne of grace, we might find mercy in our time of need. So look, I can't deal with this. Whatever this issue is, Lord, help me. 
You strengthen me. I want to honor you. Help me. My flesh is weak. You're strong. So we put him on. Put on our armor. We rely on him. We, we hide ourselves in him. We understand the power of Christ to save. We understand also the power of Christ to what? Sanctify. He wants us to be holy like him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh regarding its lust. And this do, knowing the time. It's already for the hour. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to you than when you first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not carousing and drunkenness. Not the sexual promiscuity. Sensuality. Not strife or jealousy. All right. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time here in this uh, concluding portion of Romans 13. And we're thankful for a reminder of the urgency of the hour. The urgency of the time in which we live. And we're thankful that we have a great provision in Christ. It's not by our own strength, not by our own power, but it's by your might and what you have won for us in Christ. So help us to rely upon him and to look to him always. Thank you for this great fellowship you've allowed us to be a part of. Thank you for what we've learned this morning and this evening. And we just pray, Lord, that you take these truths and continue to conform us to the image of our Savior. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be mindful of those around us, especially at this time of the year that don't know Christ or the true meaning of Christmas. And help us to be faithful ambassadors. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.